pray with me as we open God's word together? Father, I ask that you would send your spirit to empower your word. As with the whole service, we give our time in your word over to you, trusting that you would use it for your good purposes in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. It is becoming clearer every day that the most urgent problem besetting our church is this. How can we live the Christian life in the modern world? So a young pastor in a time of great turmoil turned to that question. What does it mean for us to live the Christian life right now in the context that we are living in? It's a question that each Christian comes face to face with sooner or later. What does it mean for me right now where God has put me to live the Christian life? And even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is a crucial question because you need to know what on earth we're talking about here. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live the Christian life? And so this young pastor set out to discover the answer. What does it mean to be a Christian today in my context? And so to do that, he he went to the book of Matthew and he looked for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what he discovered is maybe not that shocking. Being a disciple of Jesus means that Jesus has called you and that you have made an exclusive attachment to him. You have decided that you are going to have single-minded obedience to Jesus. That's what discipleship means, he discovered, through the book of Matthew. Now that might not be that surprising, but along the way he comes to a pretty stark conclusion. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In his little book, The Cost of Discipleship, this is what he's realizing. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, most of us are going to probably take that somewhat figuratively, and yet there's a literal side to that too. The man who wrote those words was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned him before. He was a young German pastor from Berlin whose early years of ministry coincided with the rise to power of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer understood that being a disciple of Jesus meant exclusive attachment to Jesus. It meant single-minded obedience to Jesus. And of course, if you're in a state that's demanding single-minded obedience, that means that you're not able to give the fewer the kind of allegiance that you are called to give to Jesus. And of course, that meant that Bonhoeffer knew he was going to face trouble. And yet, he fearlessly guided other German Christians toward obedience to Jesus, even when, in the eyes of the state, that was a treasonous act. And Bonhoeffer had a lot of social and political connections that actually kept him out of harm through most of World War II. But finally, in the last months of the war, Bonhoeffer was discovered by Adolf Hitler as a rebellious young man, one who would follow Christ instead of the Fuhrer. And so... In the last months of the war, Hitler sent his agents to find Bonhoeffer and his colleagues, and they were executed months before Germany surrendered, when it was already clear that Germany would lose this war. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This, as Bonhoeffer had written in his book, and as he discovered by his own personal experience, is the cost of discipleship. So, who wants to be a disciple of Jesus? 
We started a new series last week, How to Build a Church That Lasts Forever. And last week we said we need to set the direction here. We need to set, to set the course for who we are as a church and what we are about. And we, so we set the mission statement. We are here to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus Christ. Whatever else we could say, that is our purpose for existence. We are here to make disciples. That's what we're about. So we move from that first step then to the second step. Now, what is this going to cost us? What is it going to cost us to be disciples and to make disciples of Jesus? So as we continue, we're going to continue to use Jesus' instructions to the seven churches in Asia from Revelation 2 and 3 to inform our search for focus as a church. So this morning we're in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh, I encourage you to turn there if you haven't already done that. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1,216. So last week we saw the message that Jesus had for the church in Ephesus, and this week we see the message to the church in Smyrna. So first we're going to look at this message. We're going to see what the church in Smyrna was facing and then what Jesus' instructions to them are, and then we're going to see how this message confronts us today in our context. So first, what is the church in Smyrna facing? Look at the beginning to this message, Revelation 2, verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, to the, church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, that you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. So we see that the situation in Smyrna, as truncated as Jesus' words here are, the situation is not good. He says that they are afflicted, they are impoverished, and they are being slandered. Now, if you understand something of the context of Smyrna, you understand maybe some clues to why this was happening. Smyrna was a really prominent city, and they were very proud of who they were. It was reportedly a, a beautiful city. They had this great temple to the uh, emperor Tiberius, they had this famous stadium, they had a, a library, they had the, the largest public theater in Asia. They actually printed coins that said, First of Asia in beauty and size. So they were a proud city. It was a beautiful city, a proud city. And Smyrna was also pro-Rome to the core. They were loyal to Rome. Even from back in the day when Carthage was still fighting for prominence with the Roman Empire, wasn't sure who was going to take control of this area. Even before that time, when Carthage still could have won control, Smyrna had planted their flag with Rome and said, we are pro-Rome. And you can imagine, if you are on the side of the victors, things are good for you. They were rewarded for that. They were actually rewarded with it uh, out of 10, 11 different cities. They beat out 10 different bids to host a temple to the emperor uh, Tiberius to, to host the imperial cult in their city. So they are a pro-Roman, very proud city. And if you're in a city like that, you can imagine that pressure is pretty strong to show ongoing support for Rome. If you are loyal to Rome, if you've been loyal to Rome from, from back in the day, before everyone else was, you are loyal to Rome, well, then your citizens, if you're going to continue to be this beautiful, proud city, you need to show allegiance to the emperor. And that's where Christians got into trouble. Because when everyone else was proclaiming, Caesar is Lord, Christians are proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. When everyone else is going into the temple and burning incense, incense to the emperor, Christians are refusing to participate because they're saying that's saying that he's divine. They want no part of that. And so they became oppressed and impoverished. As one scholar reminds us, it was almost impossible to have a share in the city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Those refusing to participate were seen as politically disloyal and unpatriotic. 
and would be arrested and punished. So you couldn't really participate in city life unless you were going to have, I don't know, some form of worship of the emperor. And if Christians were going to refuse that, well, it's no wonder they were in poverty. They could hardly make a living in that kind of a context. So they're oppressed. They're in poverty. Now, Smyrna also had a sizable Jewish population. And the Jews had been granted a special provision by the Roman Empire. The Romans realized that these Jews were, were staunchly monotheistic, where, where everyone else was okay kind of worshiping a bunch of different gods. The Jews were strictly monotheistic. They were worshiping one God and one God only. They would worship Yahweh, and that's it. And so the Romans decided that this was going to be okay. They would allow them to continue to be monotheistic. They don't have to worship Caesar as a god. They just had to find another way of showing allegiance that was not considering him divine. So when the message of Jesus starts to spread, in the eyes of Rome, these are Jews. And so they kind of get the same privileges that the Jewish religion had won. They get to continue to worship this one God. But of course, the Jews aren't very happy about that because they consider Christianity to be this dangerous aberration from the true worship of God. And so they became some of the earliest aggressive opponents of Christianity. If you go back and look at the, the book of Acts, Jews are willing to hand Christians over to the Romans time and time again. They want to be distanced from what they see as this dangerous cult, Christianity. And that appears to be what's going on in Smyrna. Jesus says that the Christians in Smyrna are being slandered by those who say they are Jews but are not. In other words, self-professing Jews. So, you know, these likely are ethnic Jews, and they likely are people who worshipped God, and yet their actions show that their hearts are far from God. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan, not a synagogue of God. They're not a gathering of worshippers of God. They're actually doing Satan's will. And those are really harsh words. But if you look at what they're doing, if you look at their hearts, you see that they're more in line with Satan's purposes than with God's purposes. This is in line with what Paul is saying back in Romans when he says true Jews aren't those who are outwardly Jews. True Jews are those who are Jews in their hearts, who have hearts like God's, who worship God truly. So as a result of pressure from a very pro-Rome city, aided by this slander from hostile Jews, the Christians in Smyrna are oppressed, they're impoverished, they're being slandered. This is what Jesus says is about to happen. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now put yourself in their shoes. You're already in a really bad situation, oppressed, in poverty, slandered. And Jesus says that you are going, things are going to get worse. You're about to face more persecution. Some of you are going to be put in prison. Some of you are going to be killed. Now, Revelation is supposed to be a book of hope and encouragement to the churches who are facing difficult times. And it's hard to understand how this message is a message of hope. I mean, a message of hope is saying things are going to get better. So those of us with, with very kind of thin northern blood who have been you know, suffering the past week in 88 degrees weather, for us, a message of hope is 70 degrees is coming. Things are going to get better. Saturday was a beautiful day. But this is the opposite of that. This is saying, yes, you're suffering in 88 degrees. You feel like you're melting, and yet it's going to get worse. You're probably going to hit 100 degrees before this is over. I mean, it's hard to see how this is a word of hope for the Christians in Smyrna. I mean, they're facing oppression right now. They're facing poverty. They don't even you know, know how they're going to eat and how to live, and, and they're being slandered. And it's going to get worse. They're going to have more oppression. Some of them are going to be put in prison. Some of them are going to face death. 
to understand how this is actually a word of hope to them, we have to turn to what Jesus instructs them to do. So what are they to do in this situation? Pick up again in verse 10. He says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So Jesus gives them two charges. Do not be afraid and be faithful. The qualifiers prepare the church here for how they are to do that. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. How is that possible? If you know that you're going to suffer, if you're already suffering and you know it's going to get worse, how can you not be afraid of that? How can you really be faithful even to the point of death? How does this give hope to Christians who are struggling? Jesus gives the clear answer at the end of verse 10. He promises to give them life. That's the promise at the end of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He reiterates the same thing in the next verse, in verse 11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, quickly, second death is the, the fate of those who continue to rebel against God and refuse his plan of salvation. This is the punishment for those who are outside of God, who rebel against his will. Those who die being faithful to Jesus, they don't have any concern about that. They know that their eternity is taken care of. They have received the crown of life. That is their victor's crown, life itself. See, this is a message of hope because it's reminding the Christians that God is in control. First of all, God understands the situation. We talked about this in Sunday school. God knows what they're going through. There's incredible power in that. God knows what they're going through. He is sovereign over the course of history. He knows that things are about to get worse, and yet he is in control. And that's the great hope of the book of Revelation. Throughout the whole thing, the message of hope is that God is in control of history from start to finish, even when they are suffering. And further, suffering's not the final word. The Christians in Smyrna need perspective beyond the here and now, beyond what's right in front of them. And the way most of us live our everyday lives, it's as if what matters most is life. It's the, the normal everyday life marked by school and, and work and family and friends and everything else. But if that's all there is, then, then these Christians in Smyrna would be paid more than anyone. They, they don't have any of that, and they're about to lose what they do have. And yet there's this great phrase in verse 9. He says, I know about your poverty, yet you are rich. It's an incredible paradox that, that even though they have nothing of, of what we kind of value in the everyday world that we live in, they have none of that really. And yet Jesus says that they have richness. Jesus is calling them to an eternal perspective. Yes, you may not have anything at all right now. You might be suffering terribly. And yet you have everything. You are rich. See, the Smyrna Christians are promised something of eternal significance here. They're facing something of, of temporal pain, but they are offered something of eternal significance. They are offered the crown of life, life forever in the presence of God. So, you know, I'm calling this series 
how to build a church that lasts forever. And the title's not meant to be facetious. The, the title's meant to be a reminder that what we're dealing here is matters of eternity. I mean, you and I are going to die. And this building's not going to last forever. It's going to crumble someday. But what Jesus is talking about is beyond that, beyond the here and now, beyond the everyday, beyond the little physical reality around us. He's talking about something of sig- internal significance. Saying those who are victorious will receive life forever. That's why Christians can be faithful even to the point of death. They can be faithful even to the point of death because they have eternal perspective. They understand what is truly significant. And that's why Jesus could tell his followers back in, in Matthew 16. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? It's about what is really significant. The things that we hold onto, that, that mark our life, that, that cloud our minds, that cause us to, to worry and to have concern, all these things that, that mark our everyday existence, those are not of eternal significance. Jesus is saying you've got to back away from that and gain perspective and see what really, truly matters. Now, I can't tell you what Jesus tells you. Only Jesus can do this because he is the one whose experience guarantees it. That's why he introduces himself in verse 8 saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and who came to life again. He's reminding the Christians in Smyrna that even though they're suffering, even though they've gone through all this stuff, he has gone through it and his experience of it changes the reality of the world for them. It is because Jesus himself was faithful to death that he can call his followers to be faithful to death. Because it's his resurrection that seals the fact that they will be given life as their reward, eternal life. And this is what Christian martyrs have discovered through the ages. There was a man named Polycarp who was actually the bishop of the church, this very church in Smyrna within a generation or so of of John's writing the letter. So he heard this message and he was still living in that very pro-Roman city. And so there came a point when he was threatened with execution if he would not confess that Caesar is Lord, God. This is what Polycarp said. For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was killed for his faith in the very city where Jesus said, be faithful even to the point of death eternal perspective, understanding what is truly of eternal value causes men and women to be able to be faithful even when it means that they will lose everything else. There was a man named Jim Elliot not too long ago who understood the same truth. This is how he wrote it down in his journal. He was doing his devotions. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He understood the truth of what is eternally valuable. And then he went and lived it out. He dedicated his life to go and making more disciples of Jesus Christ. He went to some jungle in Ecuador to this hostile tribe. And he lost his life before he was even 30 years old. Now, apart from the story of Jesus, that has no meaning or value at all. It's just a young man in the prime of his life who was killed for no reason. No value to it. What a shame. 
And yet, because of the story of Jesus, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we see that what Jim Elliot did is not a foolish thing. It's the only thing that makes any sense because he understood what is truly valuable. He understood that, that whatever they could, could, he could lose from an earthly perspective, that was nothing because he was going to gain everything. He was pursuing the call of Christ. Living in obedience to Jesus is more important than life itself. Jesus says those who lose their life for him will find it. Now, you might be hearing this and thinking, well, okay, the Christians in Smyrna, they faced death. I mean, death was a, a real threat for them for living faithfully to the gospel. Or, or Bonhoeffer, Nazi Germany was a context that, that being a faithful follower of Jesus meant death was a real threat. Or Jim Elliot, he went to a place where death was a real threat for him for being faithful to Jesus. But maybe you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't feel like if I'm faithful to Jesus, I'm going to be killed for it, literally killed. So where does this leave us in a context where we're not at the moment facing death for proclaiming the name of Christ? Let's think about how this confronts us as a church now. What does it mean for us to be faithful, to exhibit the same kind of faithfulness that Christians in places like Smyrna or Nazi Germany or a hostile tribe in Ecuador? What does it mean for us to learn from their faithfulness and to adopt the same kind of faithfulness here and now in our context? Let's go back to these two quotes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What Bonhoeffer teaches us is the cost of discipleship. Being a disciple means being called by Jesus, and it means making him your master. The, the cost of discipleship for us is the same cost that it was for Bonhoeffer, the same cost it was for Polycarp or for Jim Elliot. It means come and die. We have to come to the point of saying, Jesus means more to me than anything. Really, Jesus means more to me than anything. You look at the whole scope of your life, everything that is important to you, everything. You think through that whole list, and there are some very incredibly important things there. And yet Jesus means more to me than any one of those things. That's the cost of discipleship. It's saying Jesus is more to me than anything else. So there is a death that's demanded there. I mean, there are lots of things that we pursue. It means we cannot cling to any of those other things. It, it means that anything else that we might live for, we might have lived for before, whether that's family or, or uh, a career or popularity or happiness or, or pleasure, any of those things, none of those things can be primary anymore because you are now called by Jesus. You are called to come and to die and to follow him. The cost of discipleship is the same. We are called to follow Jesus. And that means that we are called back to that mission that Jesus gave his followers. He said, go make disciples of all nations. Or as we have kind of simplified it as our church, go and make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. Jesus calls his followers to single-minded obedience to his call. And that call is to make disciples. Now, is that really worth it? Is it really worth it to, to die to all those things that we previously lived for, to, to put Christ as the most important thing above everything else? Is it really worth the cost? That's where the Jim Elliot quote comes in. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot teaches us why that high cost must be paid. 
Being a disciple today means living with eternal perspective, understanding what is truly valuable and important. See, understanding that God is in control allows us to actually follow Jesus, to actually consider him more important than anything else and to follow his call in our life. The cost of discipleship is incredibly high. It demands everything. And yet from an eternal perspective, it's a no-brainer. See, if, if this message, if the message of the Bible is really true, then the only thing that makes any sense is to pour your whole life out in obedience to Jesus. I mean, I, I hope and pray that you hear the gospel message so strongly that that is what you want, that, that your heart is stirred by the message of Jesus so that, that you can live for something that's, that's truly meaningful and truly valuable. I hope that picture of the bridge from last week is a haunting image. I hope that's haunting your dreams. I hope it's not letting you go. It's just clinging to your thoughts day and day and day. That's a bridge that's on the other side of the river. Its purpose is to help people get from one side of the river to the other side of the river, and yet the river has moved over time, so now it's totally useless for its purpose, not doing anything. That's the picture of a church that is not obeying Jesus and making disciples. It's totally lost its reason for existence. It's useless for its purpose. For me, this is a haunting image, and I, and I hope that you've been thinking about this through the week. Am I willing to do that? Am I doing what I was created to do? Am I a follower of Jesus who has given everything? Am I, am I willing to pour out my life to make more disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, maybe you came to the point this week of saying, well, yeah, I'd like to, but... I, I've got three little kids at home or I work 60 hours at my job or I don't have energy for it. We're too busy for this. And we hear about maybe Bonhoeffer, he's a famous pastor and he had all this time and energy to do it or Jim Elliott, this famous missionary, gave his whole life to it. But here's the thing, you don't have to be a, a missionary or a pastor to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You simply have to respond to Jesus in obedience. You have to pour out your life in obedience to him. Our vision for Trinity is that every single one of us would be a conduit for the gospel every single day. See, we're going to make our difference in our community, not by being kind of big and flashy and putting on events and those kind of things. We are going to make a difference in our community by each one of us, the relationships that we have, proclaiming the gospel to them and showing them what the light of the gospel is not reliant on pastors, not reliant on church leaders, but every single one of us being a conduit for the gospel every single day. I mean, can you imagine the impact of that? You, in your neighborhood, being a conduit of the gospel. You, at your job, in your classes, with your kids. You, shining God's light wherever you are. Now, it's easy for us to stay very general, and it's especially easy for me to stay very general. I like thinking conceptually, and and it's easy for me to kind of be vague about this kind of thing. Well, let's get out into the community, let's make a difference, let's shine our light, these kind of things. But, But this is too important for us to leave it at the conceptual level. It really has to get concrete in our lives. So I'm going to give you one simple assignment. It's a simple assignment that every single one of you can do this week. I want you, as you go about your routine this week, to be praying and asking for God to show you one person who's not yet a follower of Jesus who you can be a gospel conduit toward. And so I'm not asking you to do anything different with your schedule this week. If you say, I'm too busy, I don't have time, whatever, that's fine. This week, the first step, all I want you to do 
is pray for God to give you eyes to see. One person. And then write down their name. We're going to follow this up. I'm not going to, I'm going to bug you about this. I'm going to keep asking about it. Again, this is too important. It's easy for me to just kind of say this one week and then forget about it. But, but this really is too important for us as a church to just let it go. Jesus calls to his church. He says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your reward. May that promise lift our eyes from the here and now to a picture of eternity that we may face the cost of discipleship head on and accept it following in the footsteps of predecessors before us who have lost so much for the gospel and yet who have discovered that they have gained everything that matters. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would guide our feeble, faltering steps that we may become your disciples truly. As we face the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ, as we face the the high price that it demands that we die, that we be faithful even to the point of death, when we start to wonder, when we start to falter, I pray that you would bolster our faith by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would teach the gospel to us with such power that we see that there's nothing else that even makes any sense. Whatever it might cost us, there's no cost that's too high. Father, I pray that we would joyfully take up the mission that your Son has given us and that with joy we may see incredible fruit for your kingdom to the glory of God now and always. Amen.